All right, today I'm here with Norman Virtue. Norman, thank you so much for joining me this morning. And by the looks of your hat, you served in Vietnam, is that correct? I did. Were you a Marine? No, no, Army. Army, okay. So what did you do in the Army? Helicopter pilot. Helicopter pilot. Well, I both, both, but mostly helicopters. Wow. So is that something that you, did you get drafted? No, I, uh, in fact, I was in eight years before I went to flight school and become a helicopter pilot. So, so I was in the combat engineers and... <clears throat> worked in, uh, well, they put me in a in a floating bridge company, and and I served there for oh, a little over three years. Explain oh. real quick, because most people probably don't know what a floating bridge company is. Okay, it's a bridge company, and they have a, a fleet of trucks that haul this bridge, and it's kind of like an erector set. You put it together, and uh, the first one we had was uh, they call it the M4 T. No, that was a steel treadway. Anyway, it had big, wide steel treadways, one on each side, and it had big floats you'd put in the water and, and aired them up, and we had a big air compressor on the back of the truck, and then you put the, the decking down, and you could run, actually run tanks across it. Wow. It was rated at 60 ton, which is what the M60 tank weighed. Wow. So you could run the M60. How quick did you guys get that thing put together? Well, depending on how wide the river or whatever, yeah. but uh, we were pretty fast with it. We practiced quite a lot. I figured you would. And it had a wooden treadway down the middle for foot, foot soldiers. So you could run, uh, no telling how much, I mean, tank one right after the other across that thing. Wow. Great big floats. They had rubber, they were about that thick. And that old air compressor made a lot of noise. It oh, was Leroy 210 air compressor. <laughs> great big thing. I bet it was it's loud. two and a half ton truck. That's all that truck would haul, that air compressor. Wow. I drove a truck in that company, and then the first sergeant wanted to know if anybody would like to volunteer for a job with company clerk, because the two clerks were draftees, and they were leaving, going back to the state within Germany. And uh, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll volunteer for that. And my platoon sergeant said, you're nuts. You can't do that. I said, them two guys both got college educations. I said, if the first sergeant, if he's the boss, he knows what he's doing. If he thinks I can do it, hey, I'm on board with that. So he tried to talk me out of it, but I said, no, I'm going. And interviewed with the first sergeant, and he said, well, you can go up to the education center and take typing classes or something in the morning. In the afternoons, you work in here as an understudy. And uh, when those guys leave, then you're going to take over mail clerk and company clerk. Why they had two of them in there, I don't know. But nonetheless, I did both jobs, which was no great big deal. But uh, he told me, he said, uh, okay, if you take the job, he said, you stay there till you get qualified to be promoted, and then I'll put you back in the bridge platoon where you get legal for you to be promoted. And he did. I was there, I think, eight months or nine months, and they transferred me back to the Bridge platoon, and I did get promoted right away. And I come back to the States, went down to uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana, and I was a sergeant E5, and walked in the company commander's office, and he said, man, I hate to put you out there on the bridge platoon. He said, the best you can come up with is an assistant driver on a truck. I got so many sergeants and NCOs, I don't want to do with them. And I said, well, I guess that's the breaks. He said, but I see you've been a company clerk for a while. And I said, yeah. And he said, you think you could handle a job in a personnel office? And I said, yeah, no problem. I've been in and out of personnel offices the whole time I was a company clerk. I can do that. I went up to group headquarters and talked to Mr. Beckwith. He said, he's hurting for, for help. And I did, and boy, what a mess. They hadn't had anybody in that desk for a long time and had a whole bunch of people that come back from overseas. They hadn't even had their travel pay processed. Wow. Or their dislocation allowance and no pay. So, uh, uh, Mr. Beckwith said, uh, well, he wasn't even a personnel officer, he was a quartermaster officer. So, uh, he said, now, 
you're going to have to process all them records. And he said, on top of that, at the end of the month, we're going to be paid on a pay voucher, not a pay roster like we've always been doing. So each individual will get a copy of this pay voucher. And I said, well, that sounds cool. He said, yeah, you're the one that's going to make out some pay vouchers. <laughs> I never even heard of that thing. He said, well, like I told you, that's your job. And I'm in this two stacks of records like that on the desk, and those guys hadn't been paid. I need to get them paid, plus learn how to do this pay voucher thing. They're going forward. So by then, I, I knew enough about regulations to know where to find the instructions. And, and uh, I got this. The finance regulation was a great big, thick thing. I mean, it was a real big book. And uh, I got that thing and started reading it. And once I finally got in the groove here processing those guys, and, and for their travel pay, you had to go to the, the uh, joint travel regulation, which covered all the government. And uh, so I soon found out my little part of that. I could, negotiate that so I got every one of those guys paid by the end of the month and about wore my car out going up to the finance office and back and learned how to do that travel route thing they gave me a box about so high them and things were three copies and they were folded up you just pull them out and put them in your typewriter and just keep them running them through and you had to put on all the basic information name rank serial number all that stuff so they'd know how to pay them and uh, and everybody got paid but I had a line standing outside my office on payday. <laughs> there was people who didn't think they got the right pay. They wasn't used to that. They was being used to pay officers. Say, here's $75 out, you know. Yeah. And, of course, they, they didn't realize what was involved in that. But we had a clothing allowance and uh, a dependence allowance and that kind of stuff. So I, I had that pretty well figured out anyway. But, uh, but I did get them all paid, and I got all those guys took care of. Within, within a couple of days, everybody was satisfied with their pay. That's awesome. And, uh, so, but meanwhile, I took that stuff home with me at night. I take a typewriter and all the papers I thought we could finish. My wife would help me do it at night at home, and I'd come back to work the next day and haul my typewriter and turn you back to work. And they closed that place. We moved it to Fort Sam Houston, and uh, I, uh, while I was in Germany, my platoon sergeant that didn't want me to try to be a company clerk, I heard him talking about they had a school you'd go to to be a helicopter pilot and warrant officer at the same deal. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to look into that. So once I got settled in at Fort Sam Houston, I worked in the post headquarters for a while, and then they moved us out to our separate personnel office. But anyway, uh, I started checking on that, and I decided I can handle that. Well, it was close to active duty. Reservists only could go to flight school. And uh, personnel was a, and cooks, and personnel clerks, and auto mechanics were just you couldn't get them out. They had way too many of them from Korea, coming back from Korea. So I thought, well, while that flight school had been passed around, I'll just go to aircraft maintenance school. And I was working for a colonel who was really a nice guy. And I mean, man with a level head on his shoulders. And uh, and I was also working for a warrant officer sat right behind me. And I told him what I wanted to do, and he said, well, let me go talk to the colonel and see what he thinks. He said, that's what he wants to do, and that's... Of course, they had circulars come out every so often, and they'd recommend that commanders screen their people and find out anybody that wants to retrain out of an overage MOS to a shortage, and which I was a classic example. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Mr. Gunn, he went and talked to the colonel, and the colonel said, that's a good project. You see that man goes to the school. So I got that done, and I had to have his help a time or two. And uh, while I was down there, I took basic aircraft maintenance and helicopter maintenance. And the week we finished, they announced mail call. Flight school was open back up. Boy, I beat it right back to San Antonio. 
and uh, started my application. It took a year. To get in? Yeah, those people didn't, uh, people in personnel back in those days, they thought if a soldier asked for something, turn it down, because, you know, <laughs> he'll get better shape than I'm in if he gets it. So I had to fight my way through that, but I had that full colonel behind me and that one officer, so the battles didn't last very long. When they started telling me no, I just called up one of those guys, and they led in the right act, and away we went. But it took a year. Wow. Of course, you had to get the physical, and I mean the physical. Class one, it took a week to do it, and uh, several interviews, and just a lot of paperwork, and I finally got it done. And uh, I went to uh, Camp Walters, Texas, and flew. Uh, anywhere there, H-23, Hiller. Hiller H-23 is a, actually it's a three-place helicopter kind of a bubble uh -huh. but the army only allowed two people to be in it and I went through that and then left there and went to Fort Rucker and, and uh, there's 50 some of those well they, they took off 20 23 or 24 of our class and started their first uh, armed helicopter training that the army ever had this was in 64 or 62 sent those guys up to Fort Sill Oklahoma to learn uh, gunnery in helicopters and sent us for our advanced training was just whatever they had available. Well, we got over there and uh, they didn't have very many of these uh, H-34s, which is really a good 18-passenger helicopter. And uh, there was about 50 of us. So I don't know how they selected them. Well, I do know, too. I finally found out how they did it. Anyway, everybody just, oh, I'm going to get to fly that 34. You know, it's got a lot of power. The others were H-19, which could just barely get off the ground. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I happened to be, they put eight people in the H-34s, and I happened to be one of those that got selected by the H-34. What they did is they start at the bottom of the alphabet and went up eight spaces and sent us to 34 school. That's them turkeys up. Go all by your last name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> first time I ever got it. That's what I was going to say. You got your last name starts with a V your whole life. You're always at the end. Not right this right time. Right. Of course the Army would do it backwards. Yeah. It's hilarious. So anyway, they did that. And uh, and that thing had, like I said, had lots of power. <clears throat> and uh, graduated from there and went to Germany into an, an, an aircraft company. They had them H-13s with the little two-place helicopter with the, the little tail boom looked like a PV tower. Yeah, yeah. They had some of them, which I wasn't qualified in at that time. The only thing I was qualified in was the 34 that they had. And uh, wasn't there very long. Well, I got transitioned into that H-13. guy took me out and gave me a check ride. He said, oh, go out and practice 10 hours and come back, and I'll give you another check ride, and you're qualified. Well, while we was on that, that flight, the tower called us and said, hey, who is that? So this major was my instructor. He told me who it was, and, and the airfield commander was on the phone, and he said, you get that thing on the ground, you're in wind 10 miles an hour beyond what that thing's supposed to handle. Okay, so we landed and tied the blades down, and he said, well, try to pick good weather, just go out, anytime you want to fly, just because we had several of them sitting there, nobody flying them, he said, just go get one and fly around and practice and have fun for 10 hours and come back, and somebody will give you a check ride, which they did. So then I... Uh, they, they were in the process of making a battalion out of this. So there was a helicopter company, transportation company down at Munich, and they were going to bring it up to there and join our division. It wasn't even in our division. And uh, then we was going to have uh, a uh, general aviation company would have them, H-13s and Hueys and 
airplanes and L-19s and L-20s and these H-34 helicopters, and they had 18 of them. So they, uh, we went down there, four of us went down and met the commander and the executive officer and, and flew four of them back up to Nuremberg. And we operated out of there for a while. We got our missions from the company down there. They'd call us out and say, okay, go pick up this and this, all this. So we really had it, had it made. There was nobody bothering us. And, and there was operation dogs we didn't like. But, uh, anyway, uh, they had a, a deal over there when the, when the division went to the training area to train tanks and APCs and all that. They had a live fire training area called Raffamere. And a whole bunch went up there. Well, they needed uh, pretty much courier service between all these different little towns where they come from up there. And uh, being a junior aviator, they stuck me on that thing. And I didn't have enough hours to fly first pilot to carry passengers. So I flew with every strap hanger and cotton picking outfits. You know, people that didn't normally fly there. And I'd, I'd be their co pilot for a while. Finally, I flew with this old boy I knew him down at Fort Rucker. He's an old one also, Benny Crocker. So uh, they put me flying with Benny. I just needed a few more hours to to qualify to be first pilot. And old Benny said, time we get back, you'll have your hours. <laughs> and uh, that was that was interesting. That guy was something else. Everybody in the Army knew Benny. <laughs> Bullshit Benny, they called him. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably why everybody knew yeah, him. Yeah, everybody knew him. <laughs> but anyway, then I started, I flew that career. Like I said, and then I got just about everybody for a co-pilot. I mean, some guys that didn't fly very rarely, and that's okay with me. And uh, then they moved us, those four helicopters, moved the outfit from Munich, the bus close four, to a place called Onsbach, about 20 miles from Nuremberg. And uh, we had our own hangar and officers and the whole shooting match down there. So uh, I flew the missions out of there, but... Uh, our commander was, he was different, and uh, he knocked on my door one morning about 4 o'clock, got me out of bed, he was a major, and I was a brand new W-1 one officer, and he said, well, when you go to work, he said, uh, uh, you're going to be, you know where the maintenance office is? I said, sure. He said, well, that's your, that's your office now. He said, you're now the maintenance officer. I said, you're what? Yeah, I said, Joe's leaving, going over to support maintenance, and he recommended you, so we ain't got nobody else that we think could fill the bill. So I said, well, okay. I was in the process of bootlegging the instrument ticket. We didn't get instrument training, just familiarization in flight school. And my instructor told me, whatever you do, make them let you train for an instrument license, because they kill a lot of people in Germany because the weather changes so quick. You could have three fronts in that little big country at one time. He said, you get over there and make them get you an instrument license, but you know what you're going to get killed. They're killing people over there left and right because they send people out in weather they can't fly in. So I was in the process of doing that, and so I, I said, Major, I'm right in the middle of my instrument training. I get up at 3 o'clock every cotton pick in the morning and go out there and have to have the helicopter back and refueled and crew chief fed by work call. I ain't stupid. I know that. You can handle both. Get after <laughs> So I did, and uh, then they... They sent us to Norway. They had a NATO exercise. Uh, the NATO was trying to get themselves organized for some air, mobile, air mobility because they had done the air mobility test down at Fort Benning, Georgia, and it was turned out to be a success. And a general named Hamilton House was responsible for that. But anyway, they got in fuss about how you're going to move troops up in the tundra, up inside the Arctic Circle. 
and they had Apio sleds and skis. Well, the Army said, we can do it better than helicopters. They said, you're nuts. You can't fly helicopters and that stuff. You watch. Well, we got that job. There's several uh, transportation companies in Germany, but they decided we was the ones going to do it. Now, I don't know who decided that, but anyway, come in there and told me and my boss said, you guys got to have, out of them 18, we got to have a minimum of 15 of them flyable by the 1st of March, and we're going to Norway. I'm going to fly them to Norway, do that exercise, fly them back. Can't do it. I mean, our park priority was so low, there's no way we could get them things all put together. We had three or four down for parts all the time. And uh, they said, well, they got us a higher priority for parts, and then we didn't have uh, a auxiliary power unit to start them with. We were starting them on the battery. The thing was never intended to be started on the battery. They were all supposed to use an AT. It had a big plug-in out there. Mm -hmm. The Army didn't have any. Too tight to buy them. So we had, well, we had some, but they were stuff the Air Force had turned in for salvage. And they had a little four-cylinder engine on them, a great big generator. I mean, them things were anxious. And they were run part of the time, part of the time. They didn't. That was as much trouble keeping them running as to keep the helicopter going. <laughs> so uh, we told them, those things were not going to cut it up there in that cold weather. I mean, we, they're water-cooled and just not going to cut it. So they, they bought a bunch of uh, off-the-shelf little cheap uh, APUs that would start an aircraft, 24 volt. And I think we had four or five of them. By the time we finished that operation, one of them was running. Them things were cheap, I mean, little bridge and stratton motors. They didn't last for a hoot. But we went up there and done that operation. Now, we got to uh, Copenhagen, and they canceled our clearance across Sweden. So we was going to have to go out over the water to go up there. And uh, the State Department said, oh, no, you ain't. You ain't flying them single-engine aircraft out over the water. That water's 32 degrees. and." If they have to set it down for any reason, those guys will be dead in a minute and a half. You cannot survive that. Well, we'll put, put them in wetsuits. They said, it don't make any difference. you got about three minutes in a wetsuit in that cold water. You ain't going to do it. Well, they fussed and argued, and finally, uh, they, they got us motel accommodations in Copenhagen, and it was a pretty elaborate motel. It had a big restaurant that you had to get reservations on weekends and eat in that restaurant, even if you lived there. And it was right down the street from the embassy. That's cool. Well, we banged around up there for a little while, and finally they said, okay, we're going to bring C-124 Globemasters up there. We're going to take them helicopters apart and put them in the 124, fly them up there and put them back together. And I said, I told my boss, I said, Hogan, I'm going to go jump off an overpass somewhere. I don't want to do that. Sounds a good name. So they sent, they had, unbeknownst to me and him, either one, a long time ago, they had, uh, organized a rescue party in Germany, people in different outfits. There'd be three or four mechanics in this one, two or three in this one, that was supposed to go help any kind of a challenge like that. So they sent 29 mechanics up there, and two captains, and uh, our support maintenance, the guy that I took his place, uh, he had about 25 mechanics, and I had maybe that many. So we decided that, uh, well, we flew, was in Copenhagen, and we said, okay, we're going to send Hamilton up to, to uh, Norway to put them back together. You're going to take them apart and load them into 124s, and he's going to put them back together up there and test them. And I said, well, whatever you say. Also, they give me $3,000 cash so I can buy emergency fuel or food on the way up there and had it in my briefcase. Well, by the time we got ready to go, we'd been in Copenhagen so long, all them troops were out of money, and I had to pay them a temporary pay. And I told them, I just can't do that. It's not legal. Never mind. 
I'm a lieutenant colonel. I'm in charge of this outfit. I'm telling you to do it. You ain't got no choice. I said, okay, we'll do it. Well, we got up there, did the operation, and uh, and to bring them back, I'd do the same thing. I'd to disassemble them, drag them up in the C-124 with a cable. We took the rotor blades off, took the landing gear off, and the tail boom, and set them in a, a big old crash cradle, they called it. It would fit in there and had a place to mount it because they built them things for recovery. And they had several of them. And uh, so we took them apart, sent them back down there, and Joe went down to Stuttgart to put them back together, and I stayed up there to take them all apart. So I stayed there the longest. I was on the last plane out of there. And uh, rode back down to Germany and put them suckers back together. And took them home. The one I flew going up there was had been in an accident, and we had rebuilt it. But it didn't have all of its radios, so I had no contact with the guys the whole flight. Me and the crew chief talked to each other, but I couldn't talk to nobody else. I just had to watch what they done. And we hauled a generator and a bunch of stuff in that one. But I tell you what, I didn't want to go through that again. We ate, uh, we sat at a little place called Barbican, Norway, had a commercial terminal, and it was also an Air Force base for the Norwegians. There's a big cave at the end of the runway, and those guys come out of that cave with them F-86s, firewall, hit the runway and take off, and they were running back in the same way. Well, the weather was so bad, the ice up there on the runway was about eight inches deep. Wow. They plowed it 24-7, but it still built yeah, up about yeah, eight inches. Oh, this yeah. was in March, and, yeah. and the snow banks on each side of the runway was 12 foot high. And the parking ramp, you couldn't see, you're going someplace, you couldn't see nothing where you were going, this big high snow banks. And I had some stuff I needed to get done by a machine shop, and they they sent a, a Norwegian lieutenant out there. And he got in his car and took me downtown. We got that stuff done. And there, those guys could choose to stay in a particular station and uh, freeze their promotion. They couldn't be promoted. They could stay there the rest of their life if they wanted to. And this guy had done that. He was a lieutenant, and he'd been there like 12 years in Bartopas, Norway. The main menu up there was uh, sardines. We ate in the, well, we ate in the terminal until we ate all the food. We ate all the bacon and eggs and sausage and that kind of stuff. And as flying it in, when passenger planes would come in, they'd bring in more, but we just kept eating it up. But I ate most of the time in the Norwegian mess hall, and they just had a great big long table, and they'd open about 100 cans of sardines, every variety of them. And then down at the end of that, there was goose liver pate in a little round can, and they had that set out there. And the Norwegians, because they got, that was a hardship tour for them, six months at a time. And they thought if you was going to survive that and keep your protein up, you had to eat this goose liver pate. And it wasn't too bad. I ate quite a bit. I ate a lot of sardines because I like sardines. Yeah. But at noon, we had, they had a big old pot, almost as big as this table, about that deep. And that was whale stew. They had potatoes and carrots and whatever in there. Chunks of whale meat about that big. And that's that the only warm meal you got in that place. The rest of it was sardines and, and some toast that you could see through. Whale stew. Whales do. Unbelievable. Kind of like beef. Yeah. Stringy. Well, now I'm hungry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was good. Well, Norman, thank you so much for coming to lunch with me today. Oh, um, you're welcome. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me. I'm sure there's a lot more, but like you mentioned, I'm hungry. Food's here, and it's time to eat. So. I, I go on. But man. above all, thank you so much for your service. I really appreciate well, it. Well, uh, I enjoyed it. I just... Uh, I decided. Let me ask school. one more question. Did you, after you got out of the service, did you fly anymore? Did you ever do any more flying? No, because I had six kids at home. Well, no. one in college and five at home, and a little farm down there to try to 
build up. Yeah. I didn't have time to fly. Yeah. I mean, you have your own spot and your own land. It's a Actually, I went to school to be a flight instructor in there. I had a flight instructor license and a commercial and fit airplanes. I have single engine airplane commercial license wow. and a flight instructor and had a, a commercial license in helicopters and an instrument rating in helicopters. That's awesome. And, uh, but I just didn't have time to do yeah, it. Kids. But I loved every bit of it. I mean, I had more fun. Well, thank you for your Very service. Very few people enjoyed their It seems like you service. got a lot of different aspects of military service. Well, I did. That's yeah. uh, I had a great big variety, and yeah. it wasn't time to get bored at anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, thank you oh, again, sir. In Vietnam, I was a maintenance officer, and the company commander would come over every night and visit with me about 10 or 30, 11 o'clock, because I didn't get off work till midnight or 2 o'clock. But I had a great commander, and he'd come over and visit with me a little bit. I didn't mind it. That's working was better than laying around wishing I wasn't there. So yeah, <laughs> that's true. I had well, to recover aircraft when they went down and fix them. Send them back out. Yep. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again, sir. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome.